You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I was thinking about this passage, because this passage that we have before us invites us to compare who God is. And so I, be, I began to think about that. Then I began to think about there are all kinds of ways that we can compare ourselves with one another. It really is a way that we learn from one another. We compare. We see the differences that we have before one another. We see that I'm not that, and that is not me, and this is not that, and that is not this. All kinds of ways that we see the diversity around us. And we get to know ourselves through that as well, through comparing and contrasting. And we get to know other people through that as well. And sometimes it becomes ugly when we do that. Sometimes pride fills our hearts and we think that we're a little better than somebody else. Or we think that I have to go and grasp what I need, especially when God has provided all, when he has spoken what I will need. And it had me thinking about a time that uh, my cousin and I, we both played football in high school. We were about 15 months apart, so we were like brothers growing up. And so we played football, and we started working out, and we began to uh, develop big biceps, you know, strong legs. And, you know, as, you know, almost like from little toddlers, we always wrestled and got into it. But this day, our egos got the best of us. And we began to size each other up and compare each other. Who's going to be the strongest? I wanted the window up. He wanted the window down. Let's go, baby. Let's go. Well, needless to say, I I won that, you know. (laughs) Don't tell him. I had the leverage. He doesn't know it. (laughs) So I had a little leverage on him. But that's what happens, right? Comparing and contrasting. But we see here, you know, God's people are in exile in Babylon. They are feeling some type of way, disillusioned, disgusted, dejected. And with no leverage to get out of their situation, they begin to make comparisons in their hearts to God. Who is this God? Does he really care? And as we have viewed in the past couple of weeks in this series, that God consoles his discouraged people in exile through his promised word. God promises, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, his comfort. And then as last week, we learned his strength and his tenderness through his presence. And as we see even from back from verse 5, the, God said, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Are the promises of God enough for them at the hands of their enemies? Friends, maybe this is for us this morning. Are you tired from the journey this morning? Are you weak and worn? Have you been waiting for God to act on behalf of his promises to you this morning? Have you been so worn by the ways of the world that you're beginning to wonder if God is true and if he really is a God worth worshiping at all? God knows that his people struggle with the same proclivities then as they do now. He knows that we are weak and dependent on him. Even if we don't confess it, he knows that we are. He anticipates, though, the objections of our hearts. This one, 
God is able to make a promise, but will he keep it? Will he be able to keep it? In all our watching and waiting, will this God really deliver? As one theologian asserts, we need more than seeing God through our own eyes. Isaiah shows us God through God's eyes. If we see God through our own eyes, we diminish him without meaning to or even realizing it. But if we see God through God's eyes, it changes how we see everything else. The gospel changes everything else. Therefore, Isaiah 40, 12 through 26, we're invited to make a true comparison of God from his point of view. God is the incomparable one. God is God alone. This is our great assurance. God tells us through these two verses, he invites us through these two verses, 18 and 25. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him? Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. How does God show us that he is the incomparable one this morning? Well, one way that he shows, I want us to look at a couple ways. One way that he shows us that God is the wise creator. God says in verse 12, he asks this rhetorical question, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills and the balance? In creating the world, God works by giving intimate attention to it. God becomes handsy. You know, he, he's measuring the waters in his hand. You, you ever been seasick? You ever been out on the open seas and there's water upon water upon water and you're wishing for some land because you're seasick and you, you want to get back to some land to get on some stable ground, but it's water upon water. God says, in the hollow of my hand, in the palm of my hands. That's how I measure it. God personally sees through creation. We, he, you see, he, he uses this, this language of a, of a span. You know, that's the length between the thumb and the pinky finger. Only God has the scales small enough to measure the dust of the earth and the mountains and the hills. Some scholars see God as a worker on his bench. Like, there it's God. He's, he's doing his work. Well, this passage may look more like Shaquille O'Neal playing with Play-Doh from a two-year-old, a mini Play-Doh set. Even the smallest matters, though, God has thought thoroughly through them. The implications and the weighty matters of the materials. It's perfect. It has to be perfect because God is perfect. Isaiah asks further, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? There's no other mind, heart, motivation that higher than God's. As we even learn through scripture, through Romans 11, God says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? For through him, 
From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Amen. Even in Isaiah later, in Isaiah 55, God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than yours. God does not need a counselor. He does not need a coach or a committee. God does not need a consultant. Are there... You know, from humanly speaking, there are some great ones in the room. I know some of them. But God is on another plane altogether. He is a league of his own. God is wisdom unaided himself. God is God all by himself. We see in the Babylonian religion, they believe in the creator God, Marduk, that he could proceed with creation, but only after consulting his committee. He had to go and talk to somebody. He had to talk to Ea, the all-wise. But God has unaided wisdom. He doesn't need to go in this room and talk to someone. God doesn't need to consult, especially with us. We are the creation. He is the creator. God is beyond wise. That's what Isaiah is trying to show us. God knows the body that he formed. We have all kinds of things going on with the body. We have aches and pains. It's like, that's a new one right there. I just woke up with an ache and pain. <laughs> you know? And then we go to the doctor, and we sometimes don't have a clue what's going on and how the body works. I mean, we are scratching the surface on how the body works together and then all the intricate ways, let alone just take one part of the body, the brain. Like, how does all that function together? God knows it through and through, for he made us. He knows it. He knows how we are made, wonderfully made in him. God has the wisdom to make us. God has the wisdom to remake us, to recreate us in the image of the son that he loves. God knows how to flourish us. He knows how the entire universe is put together, and he knows the path of salvation, the path of justice. He knows how the universe is held together. He orchestrates the multiverse, and time travel is not a factor from God. God is in all places at all times. We can't get our minds around it because God is on the other plane. He's eternal, and we are the creation that he has made. Secondly, God is the great ruler of the nation. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. Lebanon will not suffice for fuel, nor are his beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Isaiah turns our attention, he turns our attention here to see the nations, to see the small ones, to see the great ones, to see the powerful ones and the weak ones, to see the people that they fear, to see the Egyptian, they are powerful in this day. The Assyrians, powerful nation. The Babylonians, they're in their backyard on the house arrest right now in this passage. With their, with their many defeats, and, and with their, their, their mighty dealings in the world, they're no match for God. 
None at all. God likened the nation to a drop from a bucket. You know, we have plants throughout our house. I love to see these plants grow. Sometimes I forget about them. Forget to water these plants, and then they tell me about it. They started drooping. It's like, hey, you haven't paid any attention to us. We need, we need some water. Water. And so I go around and I water these plants. When I tip the bucket over and just a drop of water comes out, I keep going. I don't, I'm not paying no attention to that. It's just a drop of water. It's nothing. That's how God says the nations are. Combined all together. Not just in this time, in all times. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. One drop. And then he brings us back to the, the scales that he weighs things with. On the scales, the nations are like this, the dust on my side table. God just blows it away. They're nothing. The coastland and islands are nothing. And then he brings us to see Lebanon. You know, Lebanon was great in this day. Much timber. Many, many animals throughout those forests. And God is saying, hey, will you pile up all that timber? When you bring all those beasts together, they're not even enough for a burnt offering unto me. Lebanon has all the powerful resources, and God is saying, they, it will not provide an atonement for your sins. It will not provide an atonement for the sins of the nation. Only Jesus will. God loves the nations. For this reason, Jesus was indeed slain, and by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Before God, all nations amount to nothing, no match for him. God accounts them as less than nothing when they're up against him. They are empty if they go against him. They're nothing for him, and God is trying to help us as his people, as he did then, to see that it's only through him that his great assurance will be had, that great protection will be had for his people in captivity. Nation, indeed, has risen up against nation in their lifetime and in ours, too. The truth is this. God does value nations. Even though the world has serious problems, God's affection is upon the world. His face is upon it. And he's moving, and he's working, and he's loving. Even he is bringing corrupt practices to naught. The dark is really dark. And there are things that are going on that are troubling to our hearts. When we turn on the news, when we get on our phones and see the news reels, when we go on YouTube, Facebook, whatever social media outlet, you will find some bad news, and it will look grim. But see, when we begin to look at God, we begin to realize the one who is really in control, the one who is really powerful, not the United States of America. I'm not trying to get political here, but uh, we are part of that drop from a bucket, minute and small, and we're not forgotten. Because God's people are here. The people that he has made in his image. God gives us here a transcendent view of himself so that we would know that our ultimate allegiance needs to be to him and to him alone. God is the wise creator. God is the great ruler over the nation. God is God alone. To whom then, verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? 
Or what likeness compare him? An idol. And then Isaiah begins to tell us about, you know, through some sarcastic means about an idol. He said a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set it up, an idol that will not move. The people of God has been comparing God to an idol? As our brother Tim Keller said in his book, Counterfeit Gods, this is what an idol is. An idol is anything more important to you than to God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give more than what God can give. The first thing that God communicates to his people is that he is the one. When God talked to his people on the mountain, brought them out of the house of slavery, the first thing that he tells them, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who saved you. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he tells them carefully, then he says to them, have no other gods before me, because there are none before God. There's only him. And then he says, hey, don't have for yourself any carved images. Don't create for yourself any idols, because God knows our hearts. He knows the first thing that we would do is turn away from the true and living God and move towards something that we think will give us the most abundant pleasure. We'll move towards the thing that we think will be in our control because really we don't want God just to be God alone. We want to be God. We want to be over him. We want to tell God how to act and move and to have his being, not us. But God says, no, that's not your place. You want flourishing? You want to be the true self that you can be? Repent from your idolatry. Repent from ways that you have cherished something else more than me. Turn away, obliterate the idols. Can you look and see what, what the idols are? A human being goes and crafts it. He put goals over wood that you think will not rot. The clothes that you had last year for Christmas, they're gone already. Right? Those are old news. You're looking forward to get some new kicks this year, right? You know, kids looking forward to get some new pajamas, right? The old ones. Look, look, idols don't last. Only a figment of our imagination. They're man-made. They're the work of human hands. And then to go to the length of having somebody prop the idol up, they can't even help you. You have to help it. So what does that tell us about our hearts? We want that control. We want it. We want to pull the strings. We want someone to worship us. Tell me again how good I am. Tell me how good I look. Tell me again, am I somebody? Tell me God has already told you you're precious in his sight. God has already told you your identity is firm, is fixed in him. God has already told you that you are beautiful. Because he's made you beautiful. You're a new creation in Jesus. 
You don't need those idols. You can put those to rest, but it's going to be hard because we get so entangled with them that we, we do, really do believe that we need them. But God is saying, no, no, you don't. I'm going to give you a deeper satisfaction that you can never think or imagine. Let go of that idol. It's only a lie that's in your right hand. It's not the truth. It's not going to give you life. And there are all kinds of things that we turn to in our hearts. God knows how feeble we are. That's why he holds us in his hand. That's why God will not let us go. That's why God comes to us even when we don't ask. Things that we haven't asked for, God puts in our lives. And sometimes we say, that idol did it. That gave, that, I was lucky, you know. Uh, my friend brought, brought, brought whatever I need or somebody else did it. We explain it away when only it is God and God alone. You know, we are in Christ, right? We are people that are in Christ. And we're so intricately woven in Christ that everything that we do as believers is in Christ. There's not anything that you do where Christ is not with you. There's not anything that you do that Christ has not already thought for. He has already put the good works in motion for you to move into them. And as we talked about earlier, it's for our joy. He has paved the way. So sometimes to get the idol out of our lives, God has to turn up the pressure. He has to turn that furnace up hot to burn away all the impurity, the dross, the things that we don't need. And sometimes we cry out, like, why has God been so evil against me? That's what it feels like. God is not good to me, but he is good all the time. Sometimes we have to cut things away that we don't need, and it's painful when the incision comes. But God is making us new, more like the son that he loved. God is the wise creator. God is the ruler over the nations. God is God alone. And God is the active ruler over the world leaders. See this in the next couple of verses here. Isaiah asks, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Another way of saying it is this. Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the, the foundation of all things? And the way, what is he talking about? The foundation from Genesis. You see? God has not left us without a word. He's been giving us that word. God has been intervening in the affairs of humankind because we fell away from his glory. And so God has been breaking in and telling us, even as we look around creation, it poured forth speech night after night. It proclaims the glory of God. Though we can't see him, we know that he is alive through what he has made. And the Bible even goes far as say, God has already put that knowledge in our hearts that he is God and that he is ruling over the world. Isaiah goes on further. He says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth 
And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. You see, the circle of the earth is this bowl shape of the horizon. We look out and we see it. We see this bowl shape in the earth. And God sits above it. As the psalmist stated, the earth is his footstool. The world is big to us, but it's not big to God. From above, we look like mere insects. You know, he's trying to help us have this transcendent view of God. He's actually, you know, acutely aware of our needs. God is. And he is acutely aware of the habitation that we need. He made this world perfectly that we may live in it, that we may flourish in it. And God loves to provide this in this place of dwelling for us to prosper in it, grow in it, be happy in it, deepen our joy in it because God is present in it with us. It's nothing for God to make a canopy, to pitch a tent for us, a place of dwelling, a home to live in, a place with friends and family. It's nothing to him because he longs to see us prosper and glow within, grow in, within commun- community, especially the faith community. Isaiah goes on. This is what God does. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. The would-be world leaders that are so esteemed and idolized Yesterday and here today are gone tomorrow. Many have attempted this world conquest. They have it in their vision. I want to be the ruler of the world. Take over the world, they say. They too were met with the reality, and that reality is God. God brings them to nothing in comparison with him. And they know that they are weak. They won't admit it, but they are weak. He makes them void. So do we really suppose that the top men and women of this world are really determining the way the world should go? That's how it feels, doesn't it? It feels like the leaders in our times and yesterday's times are making just bad decisions everywhere, right? We, we look at maybe leaders in company. Maybe you are one. It feels like, oh, are they making the right decision? Well, somebody else is in control. God is working all things together for good, for the praise of his glory. The princes and the rulers of this world don't amount to anything. Like seeds, they are barely rooted, just sprouted. They shrivel when God blows on them. It doesn't take much for God. They may feel powerful and strong, and we may too, but it doesn't take nothing for him to blow us down. That's how much he loves us because he doesn't come to us in that way as his children. God is the one propping us up by the power of his spirit, lifting us up to glory, to see him as he is, that he is indeed active and ruling in this world. So we need to take our proper place as well before the Father, before his love over us. He has not forgotten us. God is the wise creator. He's the ruler over the nation. He is God alone. 
God is actively ruling over the world leaders, and God is indeed our watchful creator. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He's talking about the stars, cosmos. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. You know, our son, not my son, biological son, but the sun, <laughs> the star in our solar system, the sun is big. The sun's diameter is 864,000 miles across. And that the sun makes about 109, it's 109 times wider than the earth. Makes up many earths. And you know, when you look up at the night sky, this is what Google says, uh, <clears throat> look up at the stars, there are about 5,000 that scientists think are visible to the naked eye, the average human eye. But then, as deeper research has gone on, there are about approximately 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. Some people call it sextillion. You know, they have to create a, create a new number, you know, because it's so big. It's really hard to imagine. But have you been out and seen the stars like our galaxy on a clear night, maybe up on a mountain indeed? Have you seen the shooting stars, the cosmos? You, you tried to count the stars, you lost count. You're looking up, and it's just beautiful, stunning. It takes your breath away. I think we need some experiences like that. But you know, the Babylonians, they had some astronomers that would, would look up, and they would say, the star is going to tell us the times and seasons and how to rule over the earth and how things are going to come into being. They're going to give us magical powers, and people still are into that today. But you see what God says? These are the stars that I put up there. These are the stars that I bring out day in and day out. These are the ones that I know by name. 200 billion trillion. And he makes more and more and more. God knows their name. They're without number to us. And some of them will put our son to shame. God is so vast. God is so high. He is on a plane all by himself. So when he brought, up, brought Abraham out and, and, and said, Abraham, look at the sky. So shall your offspring be. Abraham probably, he, he believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But to look up and to have such promise come to him, how would it be fulfilled? Because Abraham went down to death. He passed away. But God is faithful to his promise. And so history moved on. God brought offspring to Abraham. But you see what it tells us in Galatians 3? Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, 
who is Christ. Christ is the one who's going to bring the many people unto God. He is the one who has already purchased men for God from every nation under the sun. He is the one who has his watchful eye on us. Christ has ascended because Christ is God. This points to him. This points to the one who will send his son born into this world, who would cast off his glory so that he could be a servant made like us, like us in every way, so that he can sympathize with our weaknesses, so that he can be the one, the perfect lamb of God to die for our sins, so that we can have the eyes to see that God is the incomparable one and that God is not like any other. And that God is going to dismantle the idols in our lives because God has poured out his Holy Spirit in our hearts. The Father and the Son has sent God into our lives. And God would never let us go. He is the incomparable one. Let us trust in this God. Let's pray together. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.